1: hello this is eric with a few thoughts to share that have been on my mind this week before we get to this episode's conversation i want to share a line of thinking that many of you initially may find somewhat unsettling nevertheless i believe that at least some of you will find it interesting and perhaps ultimately even liberating or useful the theory is this When powerful people use their advantage to engage in new involuntary transfers of wealth, safety, or freedom from those too weak to defend themselves, the winners are almost always forced to create an idealism as a cover for their siphoning. In simpler terms, these idealisms are actually cover stories or bespoke fig leaves which almost exactly fit the extraction or taking that they are tailored to mask. Once this is understood, We realize that to test this theory, each wave of idealism would have to be matched to a highly specific effective confession for an injustice that pervaded the era in which it was found. This concept of idealism as disguising theft is of course an upsetting cognitive shift. It is therefore naturally initially difficult to come to see the waves of idealism that characterized each era that we have lived through not as the best of our aspirations for a better world, but rather as the photographic negative of the greed of our own ruling classes. For example, the idealism of United States competitiveness was everywhere in the 1980s and early to mid-1990s. At that time, it seemed to be about the need for all Americans to pull together and get back into fighting shape as a country. Looking below the surface, however, it was not really about the need of managers, owners, and workers to pull together through shared austerity to reinvigorate American industry. Rather, it was a false idealism that instructed organized American labor to give up hard-won gains that were then not matched by comparable sacrifices from the other groups. Once United States labor had been sufficiently humbled and attenuated in its power by the mid-1990s, the drumbeat of patriotic competitiveness gave way to the post-national Davos idealism of a world without borders singing the praises of financial inclusion, trade, immigration, and philanthropy. With the maudlin sentiments of 1985's We Are the World as its anthem, the purpose of the post-national movement was not to include those overseas, but instead to allow the wealthy of the industrialized world to break the bonds with their fellow citizens of the working class and to access cheaper labor pools abroad using far-flung supply chains. Likewise, the idealism of so-called constructive engagement with governments like communist China's would be seen through this lens as the rationalization for ignoring issues of human rights and strategic risk in such a way as to benefit economically in the short term while selling out American interests in the long term. Meanwhile, back home in the States, the techno-utopian perspective that arose to dominate the Bay Area of California held that information just wants to be free and that now transparency is king because privacy is dead. Perversely, as you would expect in this theory, this hippy-dippy-sounding digital vision is exactly what ushered in the surveillance economy, as the platforms became not windows, but half-silvered mirrors through which the social media barons learned every intimate detail about their users. These startups turned techno-behemoths, turned the most intimate personal details of our private lives into their proprietary business data, which was as far from free or transparent as one could possibly imagine. The idealism of gender and identity, too, fits this exact pattern. Second-wave feminism seemed to be about recognizing the intrinsic worth of women in the workforce, but it may also be seen as an employer's dream to push out the labor supply curve in such a way as to make the previous single-bread winner household require a second income just to keep pace. The politics of identity, which caught fire in the wake of the 2010 Colorado Senate upset, are explained largely by economist Pia Malani's theory that identity is the cheapest substitute for the labor voting bloc, which demanded far more significant economic concessions. More bizarrely, The strange media ritual of pointing the finger of Islamophobia at anyone who dares ask about a mass murder in which the killer triumphantly shouts Allahu Akbar amidst bloody and sadistic mayhem may well be about protecting transfer payments from oil rich monarchies while the official admonition to see the niqab, hijab, burqa and clitorectomy predominantly as ethnic differences or symbols of female liberation is so absurd as to go a long way towards establishing the need for some theory as this to fill the space. The left-leaning idealism of making housing affordable for all led to many bad loans that inflated the housing bubble, while the right-leaning Ayn Randian idealism of self-regulating markets practiced by Alan Greenspan allowed the banks to privatize gains while socializing the risks and losses. The giving pledge, too, may well be an attempt to keep governments from clawing back unpaid taxes from carefully sheltered fortunes or establishing wealth and asset taxes in a period of radical inequality. In this sense, it can be seen as something of a bargain. If I promise to screw over my own children for charity, I hope that you will leave me alone and unquestioned to enjoy my vast and carefully sheltered wealth while I'm alive. And as we have just seen with the Biden endorsements from Speaker Nancy Pelosi, Senator Kirsten Gillibrand and former Senator Hillary Clinton, the Me Too movement appears to be less about sexual assault and more about adding a tool for extrajudicial vigilantism, which can be wielded selectively or kept sheathed according to taste. Suffice it to say that hashtag Believe All Women has now given way to hashtag Believe Convenient Women. So, you may ask, why bring this up now? Well, in my opinion, what we need now is someone who is not part of any of the official idealisms. Of course, that would have sounded quite weird in isolation if I had simply said that we need an anti-utopian to lead us. Wouldn't we want someone a vision, a dreamer-doer hybrid, to point the way? No. We want someone who has not signed on for any of these horrible anti-patriotic charades from either party. Someone who never believed in free trade, free markets, post-nationalism, housing for all, deregulation, competitiveness, etc., etc. We need someone who is not close with Jeffrey Epstein and who does not possess significant financial relationships abroad. Additionally, someone alienated by both the hardline pro-life and pro-choice perspectives would be perfect for where most Americans are today. Since the time of Nixon, we have been in an era of predatory idealism with our best impulses used against us from both right and left. It is now time to get back to the hard work of cleaning up from two disastrous generations of failed business people, politicians, reporters, and professors. And perhaps most importantly, we need to flush our dependence on near-totalitarian communist China out of our system before it is too late. So I will leave you with this thought. One of the false idealisms that I have held back is the fight against ageism. The current seniors in firm control of our world benefited immensely from mandatory retirement policies for their elders and a general sense that used to be common. This was that long-term policy should be made by those who will have to live for many years in the world that they will create. By 2009, when Joe Biden, for example, left the Senate to become vice president, he was already quite advanced as the fourth most senior senator at the time. But he had actually been a senator at that point for 37 years, since 1972, when he was first elected at the age of 29. As luck would have it, this is almost exactly the year in which wages suddenly and mysteriously stagnated after 25 or so magical years of post-war technologically-led growth. This stagnation is what ushered in all of the false idealisms that we have discussed here previously. We need young and dynamic people again to reinvigorate our society. But 50 years of fake idealisms have now piled up to create an unequal nation that cannot be explained by productivity. Most all of our idealisms have been poisonous and from both left and right. In that, at least, we have been relentlessly bipartisan for almost 50 years. After a few brief words from our sponsors, I'll be back with the introduction to today's episode. Returning sponsor, Persana has been making razors for almost 145 years, and I've recently shifted over completely to Persana's men's five-blade razor. Why? Because as a mathematician, I don't actually think about shaving while I'm shaving. I think about math. And their pivoting design makes sure that I don't get nicks and cuts. Plus, the quick rinse technology means that the shaving process is much faster and easier. So if you want to think about something else in the shower, you'll love Persona. The difference between my old razor and persona has been profound. I've switched over completely. I'm getting a great shave and I feel aligned with the company. I think you'll love it too. So order from Amazon today and you'll get an extra 25% off your first order. And it'll be shipped directly to your door with zero hassle, which is a terrific help during the Corona lockdown. So don't wait. Go to amazon.com persona and use our discount code razors25. That's amazon.com slash persona, P-E-R-S-O-N-N-A and use the code razors25 for 25% off your first order. Amazon.com persona code razors25. Ever wonder why no newspaper on earth seems to have the resources to find Ghislaine Maxwell and no country on earth seems to know exactly where she is? Well, I have an offbeat theory. You see, as one of the top VPNs, our loyal sponsor ExpressVPN of course can give you the ability to protect your data on an open channel, but it also gives you the ability to hide your IP address and let you control where you want sites to think that you're located. You can choose already from almost 100 different countries. Just think about it. This whole week in quarantine, you could have been using ExpressVPN to give you a London IP address so that you could watch Doctor Who on UK Netflix or a Tokyo IP address so that you could watch Japanese anime on Japanese Netflix at the same time as Ghislaine Maxwell was projecting her IP address somewhere else. So, if you visit our special link right now at expressvpn.com portal, you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. That's expressvpn.com portal. You'll be supporting the show and watching what you want and protecting yourself at the same time with ExpressVPN at expressvpn.com portal. If you follow technology at the moment, ask yourself this question who is the venture capitalist who currently has the scent of innovation in 2020 and is most likely to be on the trail of the future. In previous eras, I've heard many different names, but lately I've been hearing the name Josh Wolfe from some of the people I respect most. Josh is a founder of Lux Capital and the owner of a powerful and unusual mind. The thing I always have to remind myself about venture capital is just how many different skills it requires to do well. Even our best ideas are subjected to numerous hazards on the way to implementation, including intellectual property challenges, fraud, fierce competitors, interpersonal dysfunction, loss of funding, marketing failures, regulatory hurdles, and a host of other concerns. Thus, rather than talking about venture capital specifically, I thought I would try to explore the idea that most all leading venture capitalists are great intellectual generalists, conversationalists, and contrarians. Now, why would that be? Well, first of all, investing in technology requires having a broad analytic base because when you are trying to invent the future, you never really know how to prepare for the next large opportunity that is going to walk through your door. Thus, the generalist's ability to integrate many different areas of interest will typically be able to outcompete the specialist's advantage in a very narrow silo of knowledge. Next, conversational skill seems to be very important, but at a technical level. This is true in part because it is often easier to tell whether someone is genuine and on top of their game by testing them on intellectual flexibility and insight well outside of their carefully prepared pitch, and it is easiest to do this if you can put that person at ease. Lastly, I wanted to say something about contrarianism, namely that it is actually misnamed. Simply putting a minus sign in front of whatever the crowd appears to believe is an excellent way to go bankrupt quickly and really has nothing to do with being a contrarian if you'll think about it contrarianism is usually not so much about whether the crowd is wrong but about exploring in what highly specific ways the world may not be alert to possibilities or courageous enough to consider their implications in this episode i think josh reveals that his mind and approach exemplifies all these traits in spades this first meeting took place at the end of 2019 and i've become an eager consumer of his thinking in the time since If you want to hear what the crest of the new wave of venture capitalists sound like in 2020, you could do worse than to listen to Josh Wolf of Lux Capital for the ease and fearlessness with which he appears to explore any landscape of new ideas. We will be right back with my uninterrupted conversation with Josh after these words from our sponsors. Okay, let's face up to it. I've talked to you about the miracle that is your teeth before, and most of us still can't get excited about it. You've got a mouth full of hard white jewels, and you're still not thinking about brushing and flossing often enough. In fact, about 75% of us use old worn-out bristles that are ineffective, and even more people forget to floss daily. That's where returning sponsor Quip really comes in handy. You see, good health starts with good habits, and Quip makes it easy by delivering the oral care essentials that you need to brush and floss better. The Quip electric toothbrush that I use has timed sonic vibrations with 30-second pulses for each quadrant of my mouth to guide a dentist-recommended two-minute routine. And the Quip brush head toothpaste and floss refills are automatically delivered on a dentist-recommended schedule every three months so that I don't have to think about it. And if you go to getquip.com portal right now, you'll get your first refill for free. That's your first refill free at getquip.com slash portal, spelled get slash portal. Quip, they're the Good Habits Company. All right, the entire planet may be stuck at home under quarantine, but what will you have to show for it? Are you writing the novel that you always dreamed of? Are you perhaps composing the symphony that will bring people back to the orchestra? Or maybe you're just getting into the most fabulous shape of your life, shedding pounds hand over fist. Well, if you're doing those things, you're probably listening to Naval Ravikant or perhaps to Jocko Willink. But if you're listening to this podcast, I hope you're drinking heavily. And that's where returning sponsor Wine Access really comes in handy. You see, as I'm whooping it up and singing and drinking my way through indistinguishable evenings that bleed one into the next, Wine Access team of wine experts are violating the quarantine to scour the globe from Napa to Burgundy and bring me exceptional values from offbeat labels. In some sense, it's like getting to visit the best wine regions of the world, but from the comfort of my own home-ish. In any event, Wine Access will deliver these straight to my doorstep. So join me, won't you, and shop their online store at any time. No subscription needed, and you'll find amazing values. With WineAccess.com slash portal, you're going to get yourself one hell of a bottle. With WineAccess.com slash portal, so why not order them bottles tonight? For a limited time, you can support the show and get $20 off your first purchase of $50 or more. Hello, you found the portal. I'm your host, Eric Weinstein. And today I'm joined by none other than Josh Wolf, the co-founder of Lux Capital. Josh, welcome. Great to be here. So I've heard a lot about you. Um, You have a tremendous amount of respect right now from a lot of the innovators that I'm listening to in technology. And they think that maybe you've got the ball with respect to venture capital. Can you tell me a little bit not about venture capital, but about what you can see from the perch of venture capital that the rest of us might not be able to see at the moment. In terms of this moment in time in our innovative history,
0: well, I think the probably cliched thing of venture generally, and you know, this this extends beyond us specifically, is the best way to predict the future is to invent it. And the people who are inventing it are the scientists and uh, you know, typically engineers that uh, often inspired by science fiction say, "I want that thing to be real," and then they go and make it so. And our job is to basically find them before others have, and take this asymmetric view. Uh, it's sort of the power of somebody who has a secret. Um, I think it was the uh, Nobel laureate uh, uh, who had the uh, the quote that you know I know something that nobody else knows, and they won't know until I tell them. And it's that sort of power and that asymmetry that we're trying to find, just as investors. So we go and scour the world trying to find really cutting edge technologists and engineers and entrepreneurs that uh, are building the future. And then we have to figure out if they're full of shit or not.
1: That's a great place to be. You know, there's a famous story about uh, Eddington, who I guess was the first person to sort of test Einstein's general theory. That he was uh, courting his lady love on a on a bench, looking at the night sky, and uh, his gal said something like, "How beautiful are the night stars?" And he says, "Yes, and right now I'm the only person on earth who knows why they shine." Ah, and talk about uh, great I love patter. That. Um, So you're looking for secrets, but you, you actually stepped uh, into an area that I'm passionate about, which is I'm terrified that our actual innovators, the people who really break the new ground get completely uh, screwed over in the feeding chain because they have to invent the future out of personal need. And so they're not watching the ball. And you see the same thing in music that the people who love the music are often preyed upon to some extent by the industry, which is extremely extractive. And so if you don't survive long enough to learn how the game goes, very often you wind up as prey for the predators that are supposedly simply helping the value chain along. Do you see that at the moment?
0: Uh, well, I think that's a firm by firm kind of thing. So if we were
1: predatory upon... Oh, sorry, it's, this has nothing to do with Lux Capital.
0: Yeah, all. no, no, I know, I know. No, no. But but I think generally, uh, This is a a sidebar, if I can go off on a tangent here, which is the transactional nature of certain businesses. I think about like Turkish uh, rug salesmen or something, you know, like you go to the Blue Mosque and, um, uh, you know, you go to the bazaar. You have a one-time interaction with that person. And so the game theory of it is that they can completely screw you over, right? Because they're never going to see you again and they'll churn through people. In venture capital generally, I think that um, it's a game theoretic. Uh, where uh, I'm only as good as the last deal that I did and I've got to maintain a long-term reputation that's compromised if somehow you exploit somebody because your you know, reputation will very quickly spread in a negative way.
1: That assumes that the person who's going to be exploited is the CEO that's coming to seek the venture capital. But no, what I if, think- for example the real innovator is buried inside the company and the person who's claiming to be the technologist is sort of the visible head at the top. Maybe that person gets a good enough deal because of the repeated games aspect just to take the game theory um, part of it seriously. But that in fact, the problem is, is that the person who is actually the technologist is in fact too busy solving problem, writing code or soldering joints or doing something that, means that they can't actually watch all of the games that are getting played
0: yeah it's possible i think that um uh, the best ones that i see tend to attract really talented people and um most of the really smart technologists can identify if somebody is like really trying to exploit them or not and i think the best entrepreneurs the people who are maybe taking a technology and trying to commercialize it um you know i think they have that same sort of game theoretic of wanting to be good actors of long term there's no doubt there's bad scientific actors who are liars and bullshit artists. There's bad technologists. There's bad entrepreneurs. But I don't know that, um, that there's an epidemic of, uh, uh, scientists for PhDs that are toiling away, you know, and being exploited. Uh, I, I'm, I'm more worried about the deception or, uh, the BS artists, you know, who are faking it and, uh, are actually, you know, bilking investors.
1: Well, it's from the other side. So yeah, I mean, in other words, I see a two way game. Where you have predatory investors and predatory charlatans, sometimes you have to, of course, adjust for the fact that people are fooling themselves. They're at least being kind enough to fool themselves before fooling anyone else.
0: Right, and self-deception is probably the best evolve uh, mechanism to deceive somebody else.
1: And, right, as we were was, uh, we were talking both um, but, to but each yeah,
0: other. that's interesting. I I, um, I would think that the payback, that the consequence of of an investor exploiting. Uh, somebody who is maybe um, gullible, naive, or, you know, s- s- just scientifically innocent, uh, I think it would be pretty swift. I think somebody would say, wait, wait, what happened? You only owned what percent? You know, like, and I think that person would end up getting a really bad rep uh, pretty quickly. So I think there's a natural so corrective. So for example,
1: Mariana Mazzucato has made an economics career out of claiming that the majority of the work happens um, before, right, is funded by government effectively by taxpayers and that the taxpayer effectively socializes the cost of developing. And then the sort of last mile towards invention, uh, is handled by the industry where the rewards are incredibly handsome.
0: Yeah, I think there's elements of her argument that have, um, uh, merit. Uh, a lot of the things that government has historically funded that she talks about are these base infrastructure things, you know, the substrates upon which an inventor then has some novel, often variant idea. And then they say, okay, you know, let's, uh, let's take that and run with it. And then uh, you still need somebody to then take that risk and say, okay, we're going to turn that into a product. We're going to build a company around it. And that typically is, uh, you know, a, a a profit seeking venture capitalist or a co-founder that says, let's, let's go do it.
1: Sure. But like a a Tim Berners-Lee or a Francis Crick, or a Jim Watson or a bill Shockley or Rosalind Franklin. Uh, yeah. Although I'm not a huge fan of the Rosalind Franklin theory of the double helix construction. I think that she was, a, she was a much better scientist than Watson or Crick from the perspective or Wilkins uh, maybe even uh, from the perspective of regularity and skepticism, but they were wild eyed risk takers. And the fact, that they were perhaps great scientists, but not good scientists at that point. Yeah. And so there's this, I, the way I, the way it shakes out, she was a really great, she was a really good scientist. They were great scientists, but not good scientists. Like they had decided it had to be a helix on the basis of the Maltese cross, which was scant evidence. And uh, she, you know, quite correctly said that you guys are too probably too influenced by uh, Linus Pauling's alpha helix. But anyway, I mean, my my um, just that's a contrarian view that we can't hold because for some reason, um, because so many women have been treated unfairly in science, it's become very popular to say, "Well, Rosalind Franklin did the work."
0: No, but it's not about the work. In her case, it's more just like the um, uh, attribution of credit. There's some, you know, she, she's a there are a lot of women they there.
1: were extractive upon her work yes so that there's no question in my mind that we have to acknowledge yeah that that's true no i'm not I, trying to give i'm not trying to
0: uh, give her more credit than she deserves but i think that history treated her and now it's sort of rectifying itself but uh, yeah i think her i her think there's an
1: aspect but yeah. but watson and crick were huge value adds uh, in that system yeah nothing to take away from them yeah sure but I, jim not by the way a, gave me the best advice i
0: ever got tea at his house and you know and and they don't let him go out very often now because
1: he says you had it recently,
0: uh, five years ago, six years ago.
1: Oh, okay. I think I had him three years ago. Okay.
0: So, so, and I'd love to hear, you know, but, but his, uh, his, 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 his quote, which I think is a beautiful double entendre is avoid boring people. And, uh, you know, it, like avoid boring you and avoid yeah. people who are boring. And I think, you know, everybody that you hang out with, I think are like not boring people. And, uh, I think he his standard
1: is even higher. Ah, um, Well, I mean, I I think actually we should talk about this because I'm very frustrated that his boorishness and his uh, desire to stick his finger in the eye of sensibilities has cheated us of one of the great sages of science. And so my quote, I think, is that Jim Watson is far too important to be left to Jim Watson, that we can't afford to have Jim Watson screw up all of the stuff that he figured out.
0: Well, this is interesting because it ties back to the thing we were just talking about about you know whether it's capitalist exploitation of a scientist or a scientist's own uh uh, reputation against the political correct environment um how do you separate and this is you know something that i think transcends into hollywood and elsewhere how do you separate the artist from the art how do you separate the scientist from their discoveries when um they might behave in a way that is socially unacceptable
1: well there's a certain amount of jim that is fugu right Mm -hmm. So you have to, you, you, you're you served up puffer fish. It's not that you can't eat it. And in fact, a little bit of toxin uh, plays beautifully on the tongue, but if you consume the wrong organ, that's gonna be really fatal. Right. I mean, Jim had all sorts of positive characteristics. And the problem is, is that you've got uh, like generations of people who've been taught, if there's anything wrong, like, you know, then there, there's no fugu chef that's safe enough. And so you the all- 100% fish dismissal. To, right. Yeah. Right. And, you know. and, and I do think, I mean,
0: that's generally, and I know it's something that you're drawing, I think, important attention to is the idea of like cancel culture, that somebody makes one footfall and the tolerance for that is virtually nil. And so, uh, you know, people who have great contributions for society are going to be shut down and say, you know, they're advised by people who care about them. Uh, you got to stay low. You got to stay out of the limelight. You got to stay out of the public. And I actually think he, Jim, uh, had people that were trying to help him to, you know, you know, sort of be a council conciliary, like when he was going to things, because um, I think he felt on the one hand entitled to just speak his mind.
1: And um, yeah, this was the great privilege of actually understanding uh, not only natural and sexual selection, but its molecular embodiment in uh, genetics and epigenetics with the result of his discovery. Now, part of the problem, just to be very blunt about it, is that biology is terrifying. If you actually understand biology, it is in some sense like the worst possible collection of truths you could ever happen upon. There's something to offend everybody for every occasion. So if you believe that the world should be a nice and beautiful place. You don't want to study biology. Well, you have no choice but to not be a biologist. You can't do it. And in fact, you have to leave the room when biology is being discussed because if you want any horrific uh, trait that's found in the world to be explained rationally, I can find you a perfect system that serves up that bad trait um, and, and shows you know, that motherhood isn't what you think it is, uh, trust isn't what you think it is. I mean, Like every bad thing happens.
0: You know this i actually agree with and in fact if you think about most of the books that are written about biology evolutionary biology uh, psychology uh they're all like you know the the true nature of this right or why we do these things and it, it is in part i think that there has been a lot of um uh, you know papering over or um desensitizing uh of what true human nature is and uh true human nature is and, and maybe this seems too hobbesian but you know it, it is um uh, it is dark uh we are uh, competitive social primates uh Um, we, uh, we try to outwit each other and, uh, take advantage of each other. Uh, there, uh, we have idealistic views that, uh, is, is, is the thing that is, um, taboo to go against. But, uh, but I agree with you. I think, uh, human nature itself rooted in
1: biology is, uh, you know, quite dark. Well, I think once you've paid the price in, in biology and you've seen all of the darkness and you've reconciled yourself to the fact that there's no escape from the darkness then a new door opens and then you start to realize that ethics are in some sense a means of outcompeting groups that lack them right that if you have an ethical system you may be able to defeat a prisoner's dilemma that would befuddle your rival and therefore you're in the position after a while to take their land and their resources because they're always squabbling amongst themselves for position yeah there's a great um
0: jack handy quote that i'm gonna get roughly right which is, you know, I imagine
1: Jack another- Jack Handy, the great evolutionary theorist.
0: Exactly, uh, from SNL. <laughs> um, I imagine a world where people live in peace and harmony and love, and I imagine us attacking that world because they will never expect it.
1: <laughs> That's very funny. Do you remember Steve Martin had this, uh, you know, wishes for Christmas or something? Uh, it starts off with, uh, my, my first wish for Christmas is- for all the babies in the world to be happy and healthy in their mother's arms. And then, you know, like 12 wishes in, he wants the aerobics instructor and the Porsche and, you know, it's like, it's just, it's it's completely, yes. It's (laughs) every politically incorrect thing that you would actually want. Um, so I guess, you know, in this framework, Uh, one of the things that's really important to realize is that when people can't handle reality and in fact make it impossible to speak openly, you're creating um, niches of opportunity for people who can handle reality and who can serve up Fugu, who can cut out the bad parts. So I learned more from Jim Watson in a week. Um, by learning how to just ignore his incredibly, I mean, he just has a need to be badly behaved in order to to keep checking in that he's still a free person.
0: it's interesting because he he may do it for the provocation, the stimulation of the provocation, to be able to see that he gets a rise out of somebody, right? which itself is a form of intellect. to know that I'm going to say something wittingly that might piss you off or make you unsettled. Um there is an entire class of people who we pay. Uh, to reveal these kinds of truths and media. Yes. And, and I find them absolutely fascinating because they are um, to me they are investigative journalists scientists of human nature. You know scientists study things social scientists study things who study things and uh, comedians to me reveal these great truths and they they are given permission on a stage to say the things uh, that people might be thinking but be afraid to say. And I mean, there's so many people that. I don't are, think they're given permission. They're given an opportunity. No, they're given permission because you, you consent. You consent when you're going in there that you are going to be offended. And now, clearly, there's a minority of people that, you know, you hear stories of people walking out, and, you know, Chappelle has talked about stories of this with transgender people that have walked out, and, like, he overtly will say, like, I'm, you know, I just, I can't stop telling transgender jokes, and, and he does this in a funny way and reveals these truths. But, um,
1: Uh, I actually think we give them consent when we, when we sit down, give them initial consent to try. And then like, if you look at what happened to Michael Richards,
0: well, uh, because you have this
1: issue where the cell phone, first of all, breaks, it used to be that the space, yeah, no, that's okay. So, so like, it's like namespace pollution in Python. You think that you're having a conversation at 2am with consulting adults who want to be, offended. right? And And then suddenly you're talking to your grandmother on Sunday morning about the video that circulated. Right. With
0: no context or right. Yeah.
1: Um, And in that case, no skill. Right. Like that was not a funny routine. He tried and he failed and he paid a very large price for trying and failing. Yeah. And I think that you have to appreciate that if we are giving them consent, it's very, it's very tenuous. It's, it's up to us to retract it. It is. It is interesting though, because I do think that the funniest
0: things that are both most psychically relieving—the release—you know, like when you have this great yeah,
1: laugh—are
0: yeah. often the most taboo topics. You know, and again, that's a certain brand of humor. But the people that touch the third rail. Um, we we just went to a comedy show last week in New York, and comedy Cellar? No, it was the stand, okay. and um, and I, and I wish I could remember the, the comic's name. I'm doing a horrible injustice, but and I'm not going to tell the jokes, but but they talked about um school shootings. And, uh, and they talked about um, uh, the current environmental movement against plastics. And in the latter case, you know, he's talking about uh, turtles and uh, straws. And this was a phenomenon that amazed me. There's no way a decade ago or two decades ago, straws would have been, you know, obsolesced like that plastic straws. Um, I happen to like plastic straws. I know that's probably taboo. Maybe it's politically incorrect. But like, I don't like I I use four paper straws instead of one plastic straw. Uh, But he was saying like, you know, people are saying save the turtles you know how old the average turtle lives it's like people are like 70 years he's like 200 years these things live three times as long as us you know and we're telling it's very funny okay so so but it, it put it in perspective a way. Yeah. but then he went on to this school shooting thing and I, if I told you without the context that it was a comedy club that you were gonna take 150 or 200 people and put them in a room and talk about school shootings and they would be hysterically laughing Like that moment, that phenomenon was just confounding to me. And everybody in there felt really uncomfortable, even laughing at the topic. But he did it in such an artful way. This is it. To get to a truth. Which Uh, is,
1: in general, we don't have the Indiana Jones ability to steal the thing we want and put the sandbag in. It's exactly the same weight, right? And this is the... And, and I, I guess I get really—I discriminate very strongly between comedians of great skill and comedians who are just going to go for it. And they, you know, they're two—they're two very different kinds. Like one just shocks you yeah. for the sake of shocking you. And sometimes you—and sometimes you marry the two. Like I don't know um, if you've ever watched the what is it? Gilbert Gottfried's um, version of the Aristocrats joke yeah. to signal that it was okay to laugh after after nine eleven. Yes.
0: Yeah was it wait, was this in the pen uh and teller produced one the the movie the aristocrats uh i don't
1: know i i saw a, i saw a footage clip of it yeah and, and and what's the name too who i never expected was um well, the, the other the bob saget oh bob saget's famous for like working blue but having a squeaky clean image right. lots of people did that there was another one of these jokes in, in snl um where i think lauren michaels turns to rudy giuliani and says is it okay uh, t- to be funny and he says why start now right and like there's <laughs> this moment where it's the first time after something traumatic that you're saying it's okay to laugh well there's that or there's like a there's another version of this which is um was it yves saint laurent was the first one to introduce sumptuous fabrics after world war ii mm. to signal rationing is now over or coming back to eddington eddington's discovery of the bending of light um, in the crook of Africa um, around Sao Tome uh, was the first positive thing that a European had done other than mowing somebody down uh, in but, trench But, but that
0: is interesting generally in, in you know, and even the way that you um, phrased the earlier question about, you know, where where we are in this moment of science is like, there are these moments and those moments are shared moments. And suddenly, it's like uh, there's a temperature, there's an emotional temperature, you know, in society in the room, and like, where are we? Is it okay to laugh? Is it okay to be silly? Is it okay to be? And uh, and that that itself is an interesting phenomenon of like, what is the, you know, what is the shared collective temperature, and, and who gets to set that? And sometimes it is, you know, the, um, you know, sometimes it's, it's it's the shocking moment. It's it's Kanye in uh, the Katrina. You know, when you standing there next to Mike Myers. And shocks people, right? And and changes the conversation, and and it's a completely diverted shift.
1: I love watching Mike Myers. <laughs> no, he,
0: he's just like, wait, what? wait, wait, right? And and that itself is genius because you know he himself is a master of comedy and delivery and surprise, and the fact that he had like no idea that that was coming that moment and uh with a white guy and a black guy in the context and like the, the politics well, Kanye is like the... so clean cut he just looks i mean it was, but, but it was... that was like a great defining moment and there's n- nobody predicted that right that that informational surprise in that moment it 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 made it okay to talk about this uncomfortable thing that was there but nobody was like actually comfortable talking about yeah and um anyway so so in that moment you know I, I think he did it with deep gravitas, but it was a funny moment. And so, going back to this idea, like comedians reveal great truths. I, I also think it's why, and, and I'm making it a horrible generalization because I know you're also friends with a lot of comedians. And but I think a lot of them are like seriously depressed because they see
1: truth. Oh, dude, they all talk about how screwed up comedians are. You don't have to. You don't okay. have to worry. that no, no they, they're aware so that they're, they're badly up, broken right. people. Right? So,
0: so you, you know. They see reality, I think, in a way that other people don't, and they reveal it to people in a in a comfortable way, in the same way a chef might prepare a meal and like I'm going to prepare this for you, and so that you can digest it in a way that might be comfortable to you. But, but I, I admire them because I think they're they're burdened. They have to carry truths that they see that I think make them depressed. And so it's this great irony and and weird paradox of like they're on stage making these people hysterically laugh, but I think deep inside they're like, oh my god, like you know, I can't believe reality and nature and people are like this.
1: Yeah. It's, it's a beautifully dark thing. Well, it is. So, so this, I think this is broader than comedians. I have a general theory that says reality is the second best strategy. That's the bumper sticker. And what it means is, is that if you're born into a functional universe, so you you take the Anna Karenina principle that all happy families are exactly alike, uh, but each unhappy one is unhappy in its own way. I believe that reality is only discovered when social reality breaks. Mm. So, if you think of social reality as the matrix-like thing that was actually being referenced in that movie, you discover underlying reality when you can't maintain social reality. Something cracks it open, and you—it's like if you think about it. Uh, one analogy that I like to talk about is separated regimes. If you have an ice hockey game, you only discover that's taking place over a frozen lake when Somebody the falls. ice cracks. Right. Yeah. And then it's like, Oh, okay. There are fish down here and it's quite cold and you know, you learn a lot. Um, I think that comedians are one group of people who are not able to maintain the ice illusion that this is solid ground. And I think we're entirely dependent on so-called dysfunctional broken people. And this is like the dirty interesting wonderful tell us the s- truth. Well, not just to tell us the truth, to create, to take risks, to manage those risks. You know, when I first saw Rodney Mullen skateboarding, mm. I thought something went wrong in this guy's life. Boy, did he spend a lot of time alone. Nobody would in- overinvest but like the explosion of creativity, I mean, I talked to, to uh, my producer, Jesse Michaels about this. I said, what if, should we get Eddie Van Halen and Rodney Mullen in for one common interview? Because they're sort of the same guy. They both came up with so much in terms of a vocabulary that no one had known was, was present in either the guitar or the skateboard that it's pretty clear that something in common happened to both people. Now that may be a bad idea for a show. No, I think it would be awesome. I mean, I think actually this this is, I think you're hitting on something that transcends
0: not just skateboarding and heavy metal or rock, but I think human nature, which is that I think great artistic expression comes because somebody wants to communicate. They find their medium to communicate and the way that they express it. I am always caught by that um, thought experiment of imagining a world in which a particular person existed, but the technology didn't. Mm. So imagine a world in which Hendrix exists, but the electric guitar didn't. Imagine a world in which- Oh,
1: this is good. I really wanna know where you go with that. Where where Spielberg
0: exists, but the eight millimeter camera doesn't. Where Mozart exists, but the harpsichord doesn't. Where Gates exists, but the PC doesn't. All of these things were instruments for them to express some sort of genius. Now, maybe the genius is hindsight post facto, but there was something in them. Now, if you look at all of those things, it could be you're the African-American guy that like people don't wanna hear from in a white, you know, club, you are the nerd that's being picked on, you know, so you spend your time in a more uh, solitary state programming. Uh, But there's something that, you know, is sort of broken in you and you want to express it. You, you almost by definition don't feel understood and you need to communicate and you find the instrument to express yourself. And I think the common thing between, uh, skateboarding and, and, uh, and rock and programming and, uh, um, uh, scientific entrepreneur, like they all are like, I have something to say and I'm gonna express it in this different instrument.
1: Okay, look, 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 okay. You, you, you hit on the Hendrix one, which has been an obsession of mine. So let, let's just do an analogy here. Okay. Urethane wheels and the drought in the early 1970s or mid 1970s, I forget exactly when it was, created a universe in Southern California of uh, impromptu skate parks where you could actually grip the walls of the pool. So the dry with no water. Right. And Mm -hmm. that weird collision was like the electrified guitar. Now, Charlie Christian had been like the first electric guitarist, but he wasn't really fully exploring what was new, Mm -hmm. which was the, the instrument is no longer the guitar. It is the guitar amplified system. Now, Les Paul had been there, with using the recording studio and, and the multi-track recording and all sorts of trickery. What would Hendrix have done? Because the, the, the reason I love what you brought up is we have almost n- no recordings of him visually on acoustic instruments. Mm. I've seen him playing hound dog uh, at some party. And I've seen um, like hear my train A coming, which is uh, like the famous video of him with the 12 string guitar. But it's not like with Stevie Ray Vaughan, where you, you actually see just the absolute mastery of the acoustic guitar. Hendrix was really fused with with the amplified system as the total instrument, including the feedback.
0: I issue. mean, that's really interesting, though, because I, I, I don't know, to your point, um, was he classically trained before? Did he just pick this thing up and then started breathing? Like Picasso, you know, we see the crazy Picasso paintings, but he was his Very early classical p- before that i mean it was like you would look at it you would think it's something you buy it like a you know a uh, comes in Colored. a photo. yeah exactly and yeah it's horrible right Compared no it's not like, it's not horrible I, you, it, it's outstanding yeah. okay i can't uh, draw a I, I, sh-
1: I don't i don't want to kibitz keep going uh
0: but but um but but so so he was really class was really classically trained and then uh you know found his voice right found the confidence or the comfort to basically do something totally different um I think there's a lot of examples of that where um, uh, Dylan was another one, you know, who like, you know, copycatted people and, and uh, well, he really, was Woody st- Guthrie at the beginning, right. Really studied, and then found his own voice and his own comments. So I wonder, in I don't know, I'm but speaking out of ignorance. So I,
1: Hendrix. Have, I have some information that Dylan was actually the one who told Hendricks, which path to go down. He said, your thing should be psychedelic rock, uh, mm. psychedelic blues.
0: But, that, okay, that's but, 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 but he must've heard him doing something else and well, said, no, no, no that genre is already taken. You need to find your white space.
1: Yeah that's that this is so so this is my obsession which is how does someone know that there is space to break into mm. right like that's the portal so
0: i am psychotically focused and obsessed in my companies and when i look for things on competitive advantage and looking at things where somebody else isn't there either because they've it, it requires an understanding of the consensus so you have to understand, and this is interesting, it goes back to sort of those shared realities, Yeah, and it's a very analogous phenomenon that's just like the comedian or somebody else breaking that shared reality and you know cracking through the ice. The entrepreneur, the engineer, the scientist, the inventor, the person who says, I'm gonna create a new company, uh, it is considered arrogance of the highest order. Uh, They're basically saying, this is the way that the world ought to look, and I'm gonna go create it, or I've invented something and nobody else knows about it. But in any of those cases, I think it requires an understanding of what everybody else believes. And then having that confidence to say i'm going to go orthogonally in this different direction and so whether it's hendrix being told or identifying like okay he had to have a survey of what everybody else was doing
1: he started as a left-handed guitarist with a right-handed guitar flipped over so that's already a pretty clear indication you're not in kansas anymore, right right? it's not completely unheard of but it's it's but there,
0: but there had to be an intrinsic general desire to say i want to stand out i want to be different and that itself requires whether it's an acknowledged or it's innate or um, uh, implicit uh, understanding of what everybody else is doing, whether you're in rock music or you're writing or you're doing a podcast or you're doing math or you're inventing something, you have to understand like, what does everybody else believe? What is everybody else doing? And then what's the thing adjacent or orthogonal that I can do that nobody else is doing? I mean, in a sense that that's the status seeking identity, creating thing that I think leads, I I think that's what we call creativity.
1: What I find is, is that they're two separate things. Do you have creativity to break into new space? And do you have the disagreeable disagreeability in your nature to tell everyone else, no, you're all wrong. Let me do my thing. Mm -hmm. The number of times I've seen somebody innovate something and they cannot find the bad attitude necessary to carry that thing to market. You know, and I, like I, we're both friends with Peter Thiel and here's a guy who his conviction gets stronger. The more people tell him he's an evil idiot.
0: I think it's his secret weapon.
1: Yeah. it's. I mean,
0: you know, it's one of these, like, you know, things where everybody wants to be a contrarian, right? So then everybody's like this consensus contrarian. I think he is an authentic contrarian, but it also he has a measure of what does everybody else believe.
1: Sure. I mean, he's also, he's also running. I mean, uh, maybe I shouldn't be giving away his secrets, but one of the things that I'm very impressed by is that he's cornered the market on first order contrarians. And so he runs them all as subroutines because everybody loves talking to him because he's, he's an amazing uh, judge of talent and risk and strategy. So he's, he's an authentic genius. And it's weird because I, I think a lot of business doesn't really require genius. It requires other traits more than it requires that. And then, he's got the the strength to tell absolutely everyone that they're wrong. And what I look at is the number of times where if you told me the end result that he was going to get was going to be positive, And I, I said, okay, let's imagine that you told a thousand people that if you just hold this position for two years, you're going to be fabulously rewarded, but it's going to be so painful. You're going to lose friends. You're going to be, denounced in the press almost everyone would drop the hot coal rather than carry it through to completion Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that is a separate trait from the ability to break into new territory it's not the same thing
0: it's the comfort with discomfort it's the willingness as you said it's the the ability to be like the bad guy to stand out to it's the ability to be misunderstood for
1: extended periods of time but
0: not just misunderstood disliked
1: well, it, it, yes. Because I mean, you I, can be
0: misunderstood but liked, but it's 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 being misunderstood and disliked. It's and the comfort. ridiculed. I mean, it's, a, it's the whole nine yards. Which, of, going back, we are social primates. Yep. The most painful feeling, aside from like somebody like slicing you or stabbing you, is yeah. being socially ostracized. So having the thick skin, having, I mean, literally, like it is why we have epidemics of depression and suicide. And it's, it's just when somebody is socially ostracized, whether by means of technology or just, you know, mean girls, it is a horribly painful thing. It is why when you watch some of these documentaries about people trying to leave the uh, Orthodox Jews or 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 uh, any sect, um, the 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 spite, the pain, the the tribal exclusion, and so if you are part of um, uh, some tribe in society, whether it's you know a tribe of venture capitalists or a tribe of San Franciscans or whatever, you know, and and you don't have that willingness to. To stand out from the pack with comfort, knowing these people are going to talk about you behind your back, they're going to ostracize you. Uh, I agree with you. I, I I actually find it's interesting when when I hunt for entrepreneurs, there's a common trait that I that I find, which is that that chip on their shoulder. Uh, I always say that you know chips on shoulders put chips in pockets, and uh, that, that there's something that. You know, they could have been the fat kid, they could have been the lone minority, they could have been uh, from a broken family, there's something that they have to prove. And it's like this inextinguishable flame, doesn't matter how much money they make, doesn't matter how much success they have. It's this, it's this thing inside that is going to propel them forward. And, and it's often or always in the face of some adversity that they suffered where everybody else was like
1: over here, and they're okay being the lone person. Or they can't be other. Yeah. And, and in some cases, they, they can't be other than than that thing. But, but mean, in,
0: in some cases, maybe the rejection from the others have defined them. Okay, you're not one of us. Well, so
1: why don't we teach this? Like I, I have had a curriculum um, somewhere in a drawer, in which you graduate people based on the the question: uh, Can you pass the Ash conformity test? Mm-hmm. Can you pass the Milgram obedience test? And can you? pass the Zimbardo immersive reality rejection Prison experiment. Yeah. yeah. So you've got these three great experiments and I, you, bunch of people now leave. They're questioning but, on the second and the third. Elements. Yeah. You know, those things have been debunked. No. The Ash Ash still holds up and it's amazing because I think um, Mil- Milgram, I think, i think all of these things hold up well they but just were done in the there's elements control. of truth
0: but but the ash a, experiment is interesting because two times yeah. twice is what it takes for social conformity right because the first time you watch him the guy in the red sweater on the you know the sort of famous video of it and he's like it's two you idiots you know he's he's like confounded right. at, at, and then they do it again and it's just like that quickly as again as a as a social primate to feel the pressure when you know objectively the truth and you see everybody else is wrong And you're like, you know what, it's not worth pursuing truth. I'd rather pursue the comfort of being accepted.
1: Amen. And, and, and the other thing is, is that all it takes is one other person for most people. If, if that, if that person goes first, like you have seven Confederates before you get asked Yes. and one person out of those seven, then you feel comfortable says the truth, then you're willing to say the truth as well. Yeah. You need an ally. You need not to be the only lunatic yeah. that, that it's a question of fitness versus uh, truth. And
0: there, there was a, you know, one of these playful videos that um, surfaced, I don't know, five, 10 years ago of the guy who is freakishly dancing
1: at the festival by himself. And then everybody's freakishly dancing, but
0: like it starts out and like, at first he's the joke, yeah, because he looks like maybe he's on drugs or he's just too happy or I don't know what it is, but like he's got a shirt off and like people are like laughing at him. I think the first person that joined him yeah, probably joined him to mock him. Maybe so the intent it felt
1: like on observation. Or I think so I, I a previous uh, portal victim uh, was Timur Quran in one of our first episodes. I think maybe it's the third or something like that. And he studied the, exactly this phenomena. What happens when, um, you get the second person, which is like the curating role. I am willing to say that I see what that person who has previously been isolated says. And then you start to find this chain reaction that is incredibly powerful. And so, you know, this is how, uh, I don't think we've talked enough about it. Do you know, Jeff Tannenbaum? No, but, but before we go to Jeff to Peters Teals,
0: and to what we do in venture capital, that sense of belief, Especially if you have an entrepreneur or an engineer, an inventor who feels like they haven't had somebody believe in them. And suddenly they're doing something and somebody says, yes, I agree with the way that you, the world you want to create. That is, OMG. I mean, that, that sets it off. Yeah. You're catalyzing. something. So this is, um, we, we like to say that we like to believe before others understand.
1: Oh, really? Is that
0: your line? Well, it's a line. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. But, but we also have to be careful because, you know, and we talked about this before at the moment of, it, of inception or conception of a company, you don't know whether that person is a true visionary and genius with good intentions, or is trying
1: to defraud you. Yeah, but even when somebody's trying to defraud, I mean, like this gets into really crazy territory. So if I have a great personality flaw, it's that I don't think I see people as they are. I think I see people as I believe they could be. And That's a
0: very optimistic
1: take well it's not always functional um,
0: you oh, so you see the better nature of somebody
1: all I see is limitless potential you give them the benefit in of just about everyone
0: okay so it's amazing because I am the polar opposite tell me I meet somebody and it's like my favorite line from Shakespeare there's daggers and men smiles somebody smiles and I'm assuming that uh, there's an ulterior agenda uh, an ulterior motive um, uh, I remember my first day I grew up in Coney Island Brooklyn Everybody's running some scammer game. You're always on guard. You don't make eye contact. My first day in college, somebody was like, "Hey, nice hair." They were being authentic. They were being nice. They were giving me a compliment. Yeah. My reaction is, "What are you trying to say?" So, I think it totally depends. I I mean, it'd be interesting
1: of But I don't disagree with that. But but your
0: default first impression when you meet somebody
1: yeah, is we're we're not we're we're not having a conversation yet. So, the way I would say it is Let's imagine you and I both meet somebody who's got an ulterior motive. Okay. And they start flattering you. My feeling is wow, look at them trying to scam Josh. Okay. That skill could be repurposed with huge rewards if they only realized that sometimes you have to tell a narrative about something that's actually positive. And by, by fraud, that's the shortest ride in the world. You're not going to get the value out of that thing. Okay, so that's interesting. So you you view the temporary liability as a long term asset? Should it be repurposed? I'm trying to I'm trying to de-risk the deal, and I'm yeah. trying to figure out what is the value of the resource. Now, if the person turns out to be pathologically committed to the short term, like you can convince me right, it's not me recoverable. Out of this. Yeah, but like if I met a fraudster or a murderer or a you know, a psychopath or any one of these things, there would at least be a period of time where I would say, wow, that's a really unusual trait. I wonder if it could be used positively." I
0: admire your curiosity. Uh, I think as a protective mechanism, I am way more quick to dismiss that when I sense somebody look,
1: I'll run for cover. <laughs>
0: no, it's not, it's not a commitment to martyrdom, right? It's not like I don't feel fear. No, but you'll sit
1: in it and explore it. Curiously, is there some, is there some virtue? Well, so I gave this example, I forget which show it was. Um, have you ever listened to Charles Manson's uh, music? No, is it good? Well, there's one song called uh, look at your game girl. If you really want to creep yourself out, listen to that song. Cause it's pretty terrific mm. now. Meaning if you played it for me
0: without telling me who this was. Yeah. You'd love it. Really? I mean this goes back to what we were talking about before well, exactly between and the artist and the art and are they
1: separable? okay you know one of my favorite mathematicians or physicists is this nazi named pascal jordan the son of a bitch i know good nick the, i the i horrible, kid you not horrible man
0: i came from an entrepreneur in la today yeah brilliant brilliant entrepreneur yeah incredible branding and he made a comment that so unsettled me to your to your point uh maybe maybe i maybe I need to give myself a little bit more credit. He said, you know, we were talking about his logo and the design of the logo, which is very thoughtful. And he said, you know, the SWAT sticker was a brilliant logo. And it and and I was like I was shocked. Now I don't it, you know, same sort of Jim Watson style. I don't know if he said it as a measure of well, no, provocation. No, 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 it's, it's or slow. as an objective thing of this symmetry and 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 but I sat there thinking like I'm I'm sitting here I'm,
1: and, and maybe he's right, maybe maybe there's something, but, but there's so much meaning in the well, object. So here, so if you go to India, right? So I, I don't exactly know what the etymology is, but swa is going to be Indic for beautiful. Mm-hmm. And you've got a fourfold symmetry, so it's Z mod four. And then there's, I forget, how do you say this word? Like a posematics where you use colorations that are used as warning symbols. So it's, you know, you have like a white, black and red field. So, you know, just in terms of design, um, you know, this is extremely powerful. Now, it is so colored by the horrible fucking things that were done under it that I can't have a normal reaction. So that when I go to India, even though the thing is turned the other way around, it's not on a tilt, it's the, got the dots emo- in the, the middle, the emotional invention of it. Yeah, no, through. I'm still going, you.
0: right. You know, it's like, what- so, so this is interesting, by the way, too, because. Um, you know, I, I think one of the purposes, as I listen to your journey through the portal, is about the meaning of meaning. Yeah, thank you. And, and... um It sounds like the wall PS. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I, I've been caught, you know, so I invest in technology. I love engineering. I love magic, right? Magic is a form of engineering. I saw this one guy, maybe he's an LA guy, Derek Delgado. Mm. Have, you, have you heard of him? No. He did this, this show in, um... In Union Square called in and of itself and it had great production it was Frank Oz It was very thoughtful and I like thoughtful magic. I don't like hocus-pocus BS I like people that are philosophical Ricky Jay and Penn and Teller and and so he had five props that he did different magic pieces in but this one thing it's sort of like in the same way I say when I see Chappelle or somebody else like I Can't remember the jokes, but I remember the socially poignant points that they make okay. he, he takes one of the five objects which is a gold brick and he tells a story about how he was a teenager, and he came home with his friend, and he opens the door, and he sees his mother on the couch, and she's making out with another woman. And his friend feels really uncomfortable and runs away. And he felt slightly uncomfortable, but then he said, you know what? My mom, who's single, she, she found somebody she loves, and it was his mother, and he felt love. They talk about it, and it's totally cool and calm and whatever, and uh, he wakes up the next morning. They're having breakfast, and a brick gets thrown through the front window of their house with a paper on it that says, go home, faggots. And it was either his friend or somebody that his friend told or whatever it was. And so he does this magic trick. Now, having told you this story, and I'm getting chills, you know, thinking right, about yeah, it. Sure. And, and the gold brick, and he builds this house of cards over it. And then, you know, with this flourish, he blows the house of cards away and it and the brick are gone. Now, earlier in the show, he asked people for two intersecting streets. And it was sort of out of context, and you didn't understand why. But let's say he said Delancey and Essex. He said, now I want you to know that when you leave the show in about five minutes, because it was pretty much the either the ultimate or penultimate trick he did, if you go to Delancey and Essex, you will see that brick on this on the corner of uh, Delancey and Essex. But the notable thing, and this is the thing that, that shakes me, and we, when we were just talking about the symbol that shakes us to this mm-hmm. day, because of the historic meaning that's put into it. Right. He's like 10,000 people will walk by that brick, that gold brick on a corner, and they won't think a a thought about it. But because you know what this brick means to me, what it caused in the relationship between me and my mother, the betrayal of a friend, all all of this meaning that was narratively injected into this physical solid object, to me, it was really powerful. And so I, I offer that as a story because I think just in this quest that you're on, on the meaning of meaning, and just thinking about the objects around us and the stories
1: that are in the ether, there's
0: something really powerful there to explore.
1: Well, in particular, just to riff with you, um, in a world in which we can no longer be certain, like for example, if I see a Nazi flag, am I seeing it as part of a documentary, Mm -hmm. which changes its meaning as opposed to somebody's decided to fly it in the front lawn? as opposed to it's being used in an art exhibition by somebody who was a survivor of the Holocaust versus, well, you know, this is the odd thing that, and I always use this example of Python's namespaces where Mm -hmm. you have a variable that means different things depending upon what context. And then you have this beautiful concept of namespace pollution so that you know when we referred earlier to Peter Thiel, if I if I know that we're in a VC context, I might just say Peter. But if we're in some other um, context, it might be describing robbing Peter to pay Paul, and it has nothing to do with Peter, right? Uh, that other Peter. So the, the part of the problem is is that what we've built now is technology that has created universal namespace pollution, and we can't tell whether somebody's using something for a scholarly reason, whether they're using something as a troll. Um, you know, the Pepe, uh, image, uh, I've had it used maliciously against me so many times. And then somebody says, wow, you're just reacting to a frog. It's a joke. Don't you even know the the history of it, but it's an anti-Semitic or well, the, the point is it isn't any of those things. It's an ambiguous object with mysterious ties, some of which can be anticipated. Why is somebody choosing to play with it? You know, um, but it's, but it's intent. There's an embedded intent. Well, but sometimes that you, it's not even the intent. Maybe somebody has good intent and they're a skilled player and they're using it correctly, but you're so afraid that there are unskilled players that you want to make sure that nobody even reproduces the image. Like you have this thing with the Christchurch shooters manifesto mm-hmm. in New Zealand, which I think it's a crime now to possess the manifesto. Mm-hmm. Wow. I mean, so what if I need to Oh, well, we have an exception for scholars. They can possess it in a safe space. Well, and what we've, what we don't realize is is that embedded, for example, in the first amendment were assumptions about the context of a pamphleteer. Let's say Mm. now what happens when you've got some channel that can broadcast something instantly to 25 million people within five minutes, that isn't being checked for its impact. We have no idea as to whether or not we should be clinging to the original letter of free speech, to the intent of free speech, to the embedded context of free speech. And we're terrified that if we open that up, we're going to have so many bad unskilled actors talking about it, that we're never going to get something as good as the original intent of our constitution, let's say, or that you're fusing, a culture where you can't talk about something like the, you know, Pakistan has been making these legal complaints that Twitter agrees to pass along saying, I know that you have never been to Pakistan and you're not Pakistani, but you are apparently violating Pakistani law. And we are obligated to tell you that you're doing. We now have no idea what anything means. And, you know, I give this example of If if you see C the letter C Mm -hmm. in Roman orthography on a water faucet, what does it mean i mean i would have assumed a hundred but uh <laughs> what, what what does it mean well it could mean cold or it could mean caldo or caliente mm. right so depending Context, upon, yeah well if it's if it's if it's to, if it's a teutonic derivative well, well, it's going to be cold and if it's but these it's, are meanings that are lost in hard. translation right i mean the, you know
0: you the pinto right as the car and and there's all these examples where Something was done with good intent, but with ignorance. Pinto
1: because it explodes, or do you mean the Chevy Nova because it doesn't go? Nova. Yeah, exactly.
0: No, the, the, yeah, right, or yeah. Uh, oh, is it the Nova? Uh, yeah, I think. Well, I don't know. E- either way, but but the, the but the point is, the intent was not malicious, right? But it was ignorant of, of the context of another culture and. Um, it's almost impossible to know the, I don't want to say near infinite, but there's so many different uses of certain things that in one case it's dangerous. Right. Uh, and in one case, you know, nobody cares. And these people who find it dangerous are really offended by the thing. Uh, and, uh, so, so that is complicated on how the sort of meta, uh, labeling of these things, you know, and, 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 you know, that, that's why we're getting these, I mean, you know, I know you've talked extensively about this, but like trigger warnings and, and you know, the Jonathan Haidt view of the, the antithesis of the heterodox in the academy is like, it's really complicated. You, you you have these minefields of of being able to speak freely. And I know what the, that's
1: what this space is for. Um, but it isn't. See, the, people even get this wrong. I mean, this was, this was very disheartening to me is that the media needed an extremely simplistic thing to say, which is these people uh, wish to have every possible conversation. There is no holds barred. There are no safe spaces, you know, absolute free speech. Are you kidding me? No, that's not how it works. We've had, you know, Brandenburg versus Ohio. We've had all sorts of adjustments, you know, slander isn't necessarily okay. You can't create clear and present dangers. There's all sorts of barriers to uh, free speech, to speech. Well, to, we call free speech the thing that we have that's a remainder after we've fenced ourselves out of the things that we all agree are pretty dangerous. Mm -hmm. Child pornography probably won't be counted as free speech. And I watch people get into into error because they start off with this idea, well, Christopher Hitchens really had it right. You should be able to say anything. You know, and I I did this riff, um, uh, I opened for Jordan Peterson doing a harmonica, um, little harmonica solo. And I said, "Well, will you guys?" This was in Long Island. I said, "Will you, um, will you indulge me? Uh, I have a song that I love that I want to sing, but I don't remember all the words." I said, "You know that it would be untrue. You know that I would be everybody goes, liar if I was a girl. I couldn't get come on." So I I build it up. Come on, baby, light my. And everybody goes fire. I said, "Congratulations!" Uh, that was the sound fire. of two thousand people screaming "fire" in a th- in a well crowded done. theater. Well done. And context. Well, and that was the whole point: is yeah. that we don't notice this stuff, and that's what scares me: is that we don't realize that there were embedded hypotheses in the First Amendment. We don't realize the role that context plays, and now we're exploring every flavor of stupid with respect to trying to put this back together. So is it, is it a function of speed? Would it be better
0: if we slowed down so that you could sit and adjust And in the same way when you approach somebody and you're like, let me give them the benefit of the doubt or let me see how this could be used as an asset in the future. The person, like, if, if I relayed factually, uh, 2,000 people just screamed fire yeah. in a theater. But without the context, which requires time and space to explain, at a time where... Arguably, people's attention spans are shorter. We spend less time getting nuance and details, and things can very quickly, you know, flutter away. And you know, lie travels halfway around the world before the truth has gotten out of bed, or whatever the appropriate quote is. Sure. Right? Is it a function of time? Is there a case where um, we could chastise people for? No, no, you you went too quick. Yeah. Is Is there something that shames people back into?
1: a civility of slow? Well, I'm glad you're asking the question. Um, Let's play with it and see where it goes. To me, the real problem is that for almost 50 years, we sold people on the idea that they could get by with very simplistic heuristics. And the thing that allowed that to happen was the fact that very few people had a seat on what I call the gated institutional narrative. It's like an exchange of ideas, but you need to have a seat on the exchange in order to participate. Mm -hmm. And so people were participating, discussing these issues at home, but you know, it was Walter Cronkite and Dan Rather, you know, opining or William F Buckley and nobody else could get in on that. Now you've got a lot of skilled actors, you've got unskilled actors, all walls have broken down. And the main thing that we need to say is, You know, that situation where for 50 years you you could get by with like just talking about free speech or let's slow things down or let's be kind to each other or inclusion and diversity, right? None of those things are workable. And it's, it's the complexity level. Stupid. That's the issue. We, we, the reason that I have an audience at the moment is in part due to the fact that these people have figured out. There's no workable solution with simplistic primitives. They're not to, to use another computer term, they're not expressive enough. Mm-hmm. I can't get these heuristics to work. And if you really want to know what you can and can't say and why somebody's offended and what we should be doing, there is no Christopher Hitchens simple answer because the technology changed too much and revealed, it's a little bit like you were in a Newtonian realm and newtonian physics worked and then you get close to the speed of light or you get very very small or something happens and you're in a quantum or a relativistic picture and you have to realize that you were in a simplification and the simplification worked in a regime and the regime is blown away so go back to the you know
0: the three anchors on three major networks okay and technology then you know blows that apart and now you have thousands of people and you don't know who to trust And I actually contend that in this moment, it isn't a function that people are just gullible sheep, although many are, but it's that people have grown so cynical that they don't know who to trust. Right. And um, I mean, I've listened to you, right? That you, you know, whether it was the times or Washington post or these institutions that were once beacons of trust that you say, "I, I, I see games that
1: they're playing on both sides, right? And so- This is one of the reasons I run ads on my program, which is this is a commercial enterprise. Right. And I listen to a lot of my friends who refuse to run ads. I'm very uncomfortable. I don't want to sell people. And I think that they're more honest than I am, Hmm. but I think I'm more meta honest than they are. Interesting. In other words, the message is, Hey, I'm just some guy and I'm opining and you know, I lie and I misrepresent and I'm self kind and I do all sorts of things to make myself look better or smarter. And I'd love to be open about that. And no, I'm not going to stop doing those things because that's preposterous. What am I supposed to do, self extinguish? Should I just fund this out of my own pocket, bankrupt myself, reveal all of my warts, all of my failings, make myself absolutely
0: <laughs> you know, unappealing to every, no. But, but I mean, by, I mean, by the way, that would open up a new audience and there would be a whole lot of people that would uh, appreciate that raw honesty, right? So you 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 wouldn't, you'd blow up one audience, maybe a, report, a portion of it, but gain another. But, well, but but
1: people who can't, you see, there's the Howard Stern sort of appeal, you know, or the, there's a new thing called the dirt bag left, let's say. And the idea there, I, I think we are entitled to tell certain basic societal lies about ourselves like, like what well i mean i mean by, this is a lie right that's we're, exactly we're, right by wearing clothes okay. uh we disguise whatever it is that we are you know or you know should you be allowed to color your hair right and and that's a sh- that's a shared reality right where um
0: which itself is interesting breaking through the ice again we all know that we're naked under these clothes
1: no we don't we don't know we're naked under our clothes no as much I can try to picture it, but it's actually quite shocking when somebody becomes naked. My brain actually doesn't even accept it. I can know it in some corner of my mind, but if I say, we all know. I know, I, I really don't. I fall for the illusion. So so I have a crazy... Like uh, we were just talking, for example, about this bizarre animal, the spider-tailed viper from insane, Iran. Insane. But I the, know the, that that tail of that snake is a fake spider because its movement of the spider in this kind of weird eight pattern is so realistic that I would fall for it even knowing that it's a lure so that if I was a bird, I will try to prey on the spider and I'm going to get eaten. So even knowing it, I still fall for
0: it. Yeah, but that's true of illusions. It's true of cognitive biases that we educate ourselves on. Uh, Just because you know it doesn't mean you won't fall for it, but you you don't not know it. Uh, You know, again, I know you're naked under there, uh, and, uh, if, if I sat down here in the chair and you said, Hey, let's, you know, do this, um, this episode of the portal and, uh, and you were sitting there naked when I walked in, that would be shocking, but it would confound my expectations, right? Um, I would have an extra. I'm going to do that when the show starts to fail. That's when we jump the shark, my friend. Um, you just have, you, by the way, you should just do a, whether or not you're yeah. actually naked, just a blurred thing. And people will be like, Oh my God, is he really
1: naked? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> but. What I'm trying to say is that part of the problem is the the lie isn't in the nakedness. It's in the multiplicity of self that somehow I'm stupidly calling Josh or Eric. Right? Like I both know this and I don't know this. And this is again, the same thing. Most of the time it's sufficient to say, well, Josh says this or Josh feels this or Josh thinks this, but there are lots of situations where I say, okay, we're now in the non Newtonian realm. Josh thinks a bunch of different things and they're completely different. I contain multitudes. Right, and you know, this is the thing with Sam Harris. Sam Harris is trying to be the unified mind. And I think it's beautiful, but I also think it's completely bizarre. I've never seen anything like it.
0: Well, but that that is interesting too, because um, we, we each have lots of different selves. True. Each one is different in context. I mean, the way that I am with you or the way that I am with an entrepreneur in a board meeting might be very different. The way that I am with my children is very different. Each one of those things requires a different uh, power dynamic, a different uh, set of expectations. Yeah, some of those don't even know about each other. Right, right. So in a sense, yeah, we have these um, hidden hidden selves. But I don't know that it's a overtly hidden. Right. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not hiding from you that uh, I father uh, or parent a certain way. It's just irrelevant for this particular context.
1: Yeah, but there are things that you could do that I would. It to- would totally change my concept right. of you, and the, the point that- Which
0: actually is true, because that's what's happening when, going back to this art and the artist thing, you find out about something in somebody's life, it could be their personal life or something else, and they get canceled.
1: Well, but and, and this is the really scary part about this. Every single private life would be shocking if it were moved into the public. I, I've always thought that the greatest act of terrorism mm-hmm. in
0: the United States would not be an attack on a building it would be the revelation of the last year's worth of emails
1: and texts. Well, it's interesting. You, You know, the record producer, Rick Rubin. Yeah. So he's very interested in the question of whether if all emails were revealed simultaneously, that would be a positive. It's the selective revelation that's terrifying.
0: Um, It would be a negative in that it would destroy individual relationships. Uh, The perception that people would have, the things that they assumed about other people, the things that they were led to believe about other people would be revealed to be untrue in many cases. Um, They would find out about um, infidelities. They would find out about betrayals. They would find out about all the things that make us these complex humans, the dark side of biology that we spoke about earlier and um and i think it would destroy that fundamental fabric of trust so in that same way that we have this story layer you know yeah. with the ice that's there it's stable uh there is i mean that is a lie uh, you know when, when I, I i i didn't write to you like this but you know dear eric you know y- yours truly josh like that's a lie right that's a that's a lie of civility sure it is why is that because it's not natural to to speak with those kind of uh, pleasantries uh that is a a confirmation uh, to an expectation of civility, which maintains um, what, what a mean, presentation of self. That is, is, uh, I don't
1: buy this at all. Ratash. My, my, my belief is, is that when you, I mean, when you brush your hair or when you, you know uh, when you attend to your grooming, it's an act of dishonesty. No, it isn't sure. It is. No, It's an act of signaling. Okay. Fair, fair right? Or it's a, or it's it's hybrid. It's chimeric between signaling and dishonesty. Because I'm
0: presenting a self, I'm presenting something
1: I want you to believe. Well, do you imagine that theater is untrue? Is theater untrue? Or is it hyper true? I mean, this is this old point that I make about Updike, where somebody said, why is it that you write fiction? He says, opposed to what? Somebody says, well, the truth. He said, my good man, what is it you imagine fiction to be? so this is an
0: area that i'm at the moment obsessed with okay because um the the gap between reality and simulation i think is shrinking uh technologically i think that's true in our ability to measure and model the world around us with ever greater resolution Mm -hmm. Um, the machines that we are inventing are relying on models not of reality but of models Uh, when a robot or autonomous vehicle is going through the they're not relying on actually looking at the road they're they're looking at a model of the road that's coming through as we do as we do Um, and so so uh so so put that aside for the set for a moment on on technology uh the machine does not know the difference between a game uh simulation that is teaching it how to drive on a road and actually driving on the road and I would actually, to your point about the truth of fiction, argue that the more movies you watch, the more books you read, the more simulated virtual reality experiences you have through literature. um, I don't know who's to say that you know that certainly the emotional experience is as real. You know the feeling of horror, of shock, of awe, of sadness, of empathy, of um, of introspection, all the things that fiction can invoke in you is a very real authentic reaction to something that is entirely fake. And so I'm, I'm sort of intrigued. I'm very
1: confused by this. See, Josh, you and I have never met. The thing that I am talking to now is the projection of you inside of my head, which I've never left. Right. Um, that comes from the stimulation. I mean, I believe that I have eyes I and mean, I'm I don't want to get completely jiggy, but just assume that reality is the standard picture of reality. Uh, I, th- I see you as being across the room for me, but that's not the thing that that's really happening. What's really happening. If, if everything I know to be is correct, is is that the thing across the room for me generated a model in my mind, which is the only thing I've ever interacted with that is Josh. And what is astounding if you know the phrase, the map is not the territory mm-hmm. is the other part of that, which is, but wow, what a goddamn map it is because it's so close to the territory that we, we are astounded when we find the discrepancies, the deltas between the map and the territory. So this, it, it, all these things to me are related.
0: The technological gap that shrinks between the simulacrum and reality, mm-hmm. the expectation that we have that we're sitting across model to model, right? Uh, the awareness, which, others might not have that I am actually looking at the you of, you know, a tenth of a second ago in the past and not, you know,
1: you. Um yeah, David Eagleman says we live 43 milliseconds in the past. Which so is so fascinating, right? Yeah. But true. Uh so being that there is a David Eagleman. But right,
0: on. exactly. And um um but but the um, um the the idea of of the model itself um, and, and something you said about, you know, confounding sort of expectations or surprise. The most, can we talk about consciousness for a second? Sure. The most persuasive argument that I've heard about consciousness goes back to um, Jeff Hawkins when he wrote On Intelligence. And I think he took from the hierarchical structure of uh, Santiago Ramon y Cajal and um, the idea of memory prediction. Mm-hmm. So if you see my shoes mm-hmm. and you say, okay, that's Josh. And I have a mo- you have a model now. You see me again maybe you just see the element of the shoe and you predict from the specific to the general and you say that that's gonna be Josh. But if it wasn't Josh, if it was your brother, if Brad is sitting here and he's wearing my shoes, you'd be like, oh, you know, you have an emotional surprise. Yep. The surprise adjusts the weight of your model. Yep. Biologically, physiologically. Hopefully. And, and said, whoa, that's a surprise. And it's an informational surprise and it shocks you into updating your model. And, um, and, and um, th- this phenomenon of memory prediction in technology, in us thinking about ourselves, in the gap between fiction and reality, in the work of philosophers that at the moment I find really interesting, like Carl Friston and and Andy Clark. Um, They're all thinking about how this model of reality that we hold then interacts with the real world, assuming that exists. And and then just is constantly feedback between the two it's it's to me where technology is trending is, is right at this nexus where it's becoming harder and harder to know where model and reality that line is becoming thinner and thinner. And I think, I think there's going to be a whole suite of engineers and technologists that go mad because of it.
1: Well, at the moment we're, you know, we're experimenting because Joe Rogan has left so much of his voice in the world. We can train deep fake Rogans. Yeah. And deep fake Weinsteins. Well, increasingly I'll, I'll leave a larger corpus and the machines will get better, right? So now you have deep fakes everywhere. And then there's going to be increasingly an issue about what is authenticity? What is its dependable signature? So we'll be able to manufacture a haystack around everything we wish to hide as a needle. So um,
0: if you think about finding opportunity between abundance and scarcity, yeah. In the late 90s, the thing that became really abundant was everybody producing blogs and information online, and the scarce thing was being able to find that needle in that haystack. Mm. And so ergo search engines, Google. It wasn't maybe obvious amongst the 20 that right. preceded it, but post facto in hindsight, you say, okay, right. of course. Today, with the abundance of the tools we have, whether they're video editing or Photoshopping or audio or whatever comes next, yeah. where the simulacrum and that distance between reality and simulation keeps shrinking, in what we're using to train our technologies and in our own perception of reality and news and information the abundance of that means that there's something scarce and the scarce thing is being able to accurately detect veracity and so i feel like there will be an increasing weight of value put on tools that can detect is that photo real is there some aberration in that voice and and it's still going to be somewhat perceptible and detectable if you watch these deep fakes of obama or zuckerberg you know the things that people post online to the native eye it's very hard to detect Mm -hmm. there's still it's past the uncanny valley but there's still this weird yeah but that's going to shrink it will uh this gap is absolutely shrinking but but technology can still detect that it can still
1: you'll have an arms race as we've always seen in nature so we were talking before about Batesian and mullerian mimicry yes or deception uh... and detection Yes. And the idea that is, if two things are different, then there's almost always going to be something that can tell the two apart, but that becomes increasingly expensive and invasive. And I don't think that, I mean, I don't think that this game that we've been living in and calling life is long for this planet. Okay. That's provocative. Well,
0: this is the portal we have to get out of here. (laughs) Where, Where are we going?
1: Uh, Well, there's one phrase that constantly recurs in my mind, and I've decided to give it a non-zero weight value just to shut it up. But the phrase is, our home is in the stars or not at all.
0: So, okay. Uh, And
1: my belief is, is that we can talk about uploading, we can talk about an outbreak of wisdom that allows us to be good stewards of our planet. But more or less in the mid 20th century, around 1952 to 54, we had two discoveries that almost certainly we should all be able to calculate, start at a clock where if we don't get out of here and spread out and try a bunch of different experiments, and, and, and of course that's probably impossible. And it's also probably impossible to diversify it enough. And where would we hide from each other? There's all sorts of issues. But is your implication a, a metaphor that,
0: uh, a literal that we're going to the stars. We're going to go to Mars or wherever it might be. We're going to outer space. We're leaving this planet or, or is it a, uh, or is it a metaphor, a poetic metaphor of, um, I wish
1: it was a metaphor. I wish it, I wish it wasn't what I'm actually saying, but if I, if I say it straight, say it straight, uh, we are about to hack our own source code. Okay. And it, there's this very bizarre thing that has happened in technology, which is we are very afraid that we, the, the, the ones who can simulate humans, let's say mm-hmm. with uh, Boston dynamics and we can simulate speech with uh, deep learning and all of these sorts of things. Okay. We are afraid that our technology is about to become artificially generally intelligent and self-aware or begin to run out of control and outwit us but we're also at the same exact moment wondering, are we part of a simulation where there are programmers? Now, the obvious implication is almost never discussed, which is we are the emergent artificially general intelligence and we are on the verge of learning our own source code. And Is the simulator afraid that we are going to arise in the system with powers that the simulator does not possess? I don't know. Why are we worried about it in one direction? Not like we've, we've become deeply nonsensical because if you look at the decision tree and this is the really hard thing to grasp and push the decision tree out 500 years, there is no branch of the decision tree that does not look insane. That part I might agree with because I- Like either we're gonna upload or we're gonna become wise and kind, or we're going to diversify into the three rocks that we can reach without violating the Einsteinian speed limit, and somehow that'll be enough, or we're gonna get around the Einsteinian speed limit, or we're gonna reboot from tardigrades. What? whatever it is yeah but but those things need not be mutually exclusive right there might be different camps that pursue each of those different strategies okay. there is no branch of that decision tree that looks like us continuing on more or less as we are with a little bit of improvement
0: here that's probably true I, I um by the way when you say the we um i realize there's a large subset and maybe a growing subset and even a growing subset in technology but i am staunchly not in the bostrom uh camp and, and i think even the sam harris camp about agi I am much more in the David Deutsch camp. Um, and, uh, you know, this is a, a subtle and maybe very long argument. Um, but uh, I actually posed this to David recently on um, the idea about simulation and and we were talking about mathematical concepts. Can you just sort of say what those camps are? Because I generally don't follow these. Uh, well, well, Bostrom makes a philosophical argument that I think is um, widely celebrated and has um, in the same way that uh, if you go back 20 years in nanotechnology, you had Eric Drexler that was prop- prop- Poning a sort of pseudo-scientific, but had elements of science, um, uh, argue about nanobots, you know, run uh, amok. And he had his credible and wealthy technology champion, uh, which at the time was uh, Bill Joy. And so Bill Joy was basically warning, you know, nanobots are going amok and so on. Today you have Bostrom, and Bostrom's uh, equivalent of Bill Joy today is Elon, uh, Elon Musk. And and, um, and, and, very smart people are very concerned about, you know, uh, us becoming, you know, paperclip factories and being, uh, harvested by intelligent sentient machines, uh, that are going to run amok. And, um, and David Deutsch's view is a little bit more, and, and this was something that I posted recently that, um, you know, are we a simulation that, that a simulation can take, um, all of the tools and principles that, uh, that we have, uh, or, sorry, sorry, uh, Inside of a simulation, it can have all of the tools that we give it, but uh, but uh it need not have uh, or may not have and probably won't have all of the tools that are outside the simulation. And so um, he makes, to me, a more logical argument that the more dangerous thing is not an AGI run amok, but your average, you know, 15 to 17 year old teenager.
1: Uh, the cost of everything coming down, and what power is put within reach?
0: Yeah, but we get more processing power, we get more memory, we have better algorithms. But um, but uh, and and everything, in fairness, that uh, everybody said was going to, to be a limit of some human ability has been eclipsed. You know, from checkers to chess to go to, you know, even artistic creation and now generative text. And um, you know, that's another area. Technologically, we are we had maybe five years ago an ImageNet moment where you had greater than 90 or 95% computer accuracy of what a human could do in detecting objects in a picture. And there's still lots of errors and comical ones that people poke fun of online. Uh, surprisingly, images are uh, less complex than text. Um, and today we're approaching sort of a Turing-like moment, of Turing test-like moment of being able to uh, have greater than 95% uh, accuracy in being able to construct text, complex uh, conversational text. Uh, conversational text taken from, you know, your library of of uh, words and phrases that you're apt to use and you know sort of in your voice where where it would it would fool if, if you were texting with peter or or with joe rogan or me you you would be fooled um uh, uh-huh. i don't
1: think i don't think you could fool me about peter no why the level of surprise
0: okay that's that's an interesting test because we, we have a company that's doing this maybe that's a
1: I mean, I think I can run Peter as well in emulation as many people I know. And you would still confound yourself and. In... I mean, his, his operating system is not built the way the rest of ours is. Okay. All right. So let's put him aside as sure, a, sure, as sure.
0: a escapable anomaly, but, um, but, but all of these things are still parametrically constrained in the system. Uh, they can do that particular thing extremely well. They can look at images extremely well. They can uh, navigate a road extremely well. They can um, search query from Jeopardy extremely well. But they can suddenly come out of that system. So if you accept that premise of it's a simulation and it has the tools um, that you've put inside of it, but it, it can't go and create other tools that are outside of it. Well,
1: Have you heard my riff on the square root? No. Yeah, the square root is the really dangerous mathematical operation. Why? because it allows you to ask questions within a system that have to be answered within another. Okay. So for example, yep. there's a something called the determinant of a matrix, but the square root that might exist is called the Fafian that really requires an extra uh, leap. Same thing with vectors become spinners. The square root of the anti-symmetric tensor system, brings out this thing out of the vacuum that you sort of didn't know was lurking around. Um, you know, it's like the square root of negative one, right? There's no answer in the real numbers. You pose the question in the real number. So this is the question of finding the portal. Uh, I've said it's the psychedelic of mathematics. Now, if you allow me to train a machine and I I find it very surprising that nobody talks about this, Hmm. but the square root is the most dangerous operation known to mathematics. And if you teach a computer, all of the instances in which a square root allowed humans to find, even humans don't think of this, right? They don't think how many times have we taken the square root and found a new universe waiting for us. I've never thought that weirdly nobody does. I mean, Wait, even, so, so, but,
0: but you were saying if you could train a computer, to to what finish that thought? i've got an n Mm
1: -hmm. that includes fafians spinners uh spin groups um norm division algebras all the best stuff in my life comes from the square root
0: mathematical geometry complex
1: it's there's nothing like it man square root is 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 heroin (laughs) there's no operation that is as cool as the square root and we don't tell people this and it's because of flatland. I I was born into flatland, but I learned from the masters. I learned from the people who innovated and I noticed this pattern that many of them didn't notice. Like to to, to this day, I'm not aware of anyone teaching this. I'm now doing this at scale. I mean, I think I did this on Joe Rogan. Mostly I don't talk about it, but you want to teach people to bust out of the cognitive prisons, teach them the square root. Mm. So, so if you could program into a machine, the ability to detect the square
0: root of any of these abstract. Just ask
1: the question, like you, you could ask the question. Yeah. Assume you're given a system. Yes. Assume that you're given a, an operation that is the square root that is functional in part of that system and returns nonsensical answers in some other part. Ask yourself the question, what can I adjoin to the original system so that the square root will become meaningful? Hmm. It's like you want to find you want to find the panic room in a house. Yeah, that's how you find the book in the in the shelves. That when you pull it out, swings open the bookcase and shows you the 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 magnificent crystal palace that was hidden in your uh, two story walk up.
0: That, that is that's your book, The Danger of the Square Root. Well, Danger
1: squared. Well, no. Well, we're headed. Look, this program is trying. This is my distribution channel. My entire life, I have had my access to the world gated by people who I have come not to respect.
0: Mm. And now that gate is open. You've created a gate. You've created your own portal
1: until they've noticed.
0: Yeah.
1: Right. And you know, then they're going to say, well, I think Dan, Dan Dresner, uh, columnist for the Washington post professor Tufts said about me Hmm. that everything that I think that's true isn't new and everything that I think that I say, uh, is new new isn't isn't true. true. Yeah. So I am miraculously incapable of generating anything of interest Hmm. and I'm really looking forward to having him on the podcast. Have you invited him? He's being invited right now for the first time. Awesome. I hope he accepts Uh, Josh. I could talk to you forever. I hope you're going to come back to the portal. And uh, I don't think we talked a lot about venture capital, but I think what we did do is we talked about the thing that you do that infuses venture capital with um, hope and wonder and transcendence. And I hope to have another conversation with you soon, which doesn't necessarily talk about venture capital either. I'd love to love what you're doing. It's been fantastic. Thanks, man. All right. You've been through the portal with Josh Wolf of Lux Capital. And uh, I hope that you will subscribe on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts, and then head over to YouTube and subscribe to our channel there. And remember to click the bell so that you'll be notified when our next episode drops. Be well.